I hope you are having a wonderful holiday season, and I'm encouraging everyone these holidays to try to find the oldest living relative around you, find a quiet place, and to record them, answering just a few simple things like, where were you born? What were the circumstances around your birth? Where were you in the birth order? What do you know about all that? Uh, what do you remember about your oldest living relatives? Could be grandparents or great-grandparents. You know, what were things like when you went to school, etc.? And to preserve that for the family. Because it's not morbid, it's just fact that these folks will not be around forever. And we have no guarantees of getting together next holiday season. And so let's do it while we can. It's what I do professionally. It's why I founded my company and created it. It's called Voice Locket, voicelocket.com. Take a look. If I can help you or encourage you or give you any kind of support, I'm happy to do that because I really believe in this. I did it with my own family, and it's something you will never regret, especially if you back up the backups, make multiple copies, so we'll make sure that it's always there. Voicelocket.com. Whose voice do you want to save? I do believe I'm responsible for dedicating myself to my own healing so that I can be of service to those around me. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. We're almost three years in, never missing an episode. Oh man, that feels good, a sense of accomplishment. This week, my friend Mar, who goes by the pronouns they and them, takes some getting used to for an old boomer, and I just hope and beg your forgiveness if I slip up. Uh, I met them uh, in the worlds of adoption and addiction recovery, and they have been very supportive and active and encouraging, and we've learned from each other, and they were present at uh, a hate crime shooting and survived, and you will hear references to that. So if it's a trigger for you, be forewarned. In the meantime, my friend, Mar. Where were you born? I was born in San Francisco. Okay. We should clarify, you <laughs> were adopted. That's how we met. We did, we met because I'm adopted and I was number three in the birth order in my adoptive family. Okay. And my adoptive mother birthed the two that came before me. Got it. And that was a brother and a sister, right? Correct. But the sister was no longer living. Am I remembering that right? Correct. Yes. And she had died how much before you were adopted? A year. Oh, my God. 
So did that make you like a replacement baby? I think a lot of ways of looking at it are yes. I think the answer is yes. And I know that my adoptive parents did not intend that. They never wanted to communicate that to me. Um, and yet they did not have, I think, the time and resources emotionally to be able to really prepare for me. Uh, and also they didn't know a lot about how much a relinquished child may have needs different from a birthed child, um, just the way so, so many people today don't really know how much different it is to, to, to bring into one's home someone who comes from another family tree. So I think there was an expectation largely set in motion by the adoption industry that this would be an easy way to return their family family to some kind of normalcy, you know, that they were a mother and a father and two children and that they would be made whole again somehow by having a new child in place of the girl that was there. And I think they also really meant well that they were also creating a family to include me that would be a brand new family for me and not not a broken family. So it's difficult to answer the question because I I felt a tremendous pressure to fill her shoes. And I felt like I was supposed to be the replacement that would make the family whole. I hear this phrase all the time. We love all our children exactly the same. And that is an impossible thing. Even if you have multiple biological children, as I do, you have to meet them where they're at. And I have met children who were born into a family where there had been a child who died. And in many ways, they have the same feelings that I did as, as a replacement child. I... I think it's very difficult to talk about that with my families, any of my families actually, because I think maybe it's natural, maybe it's human to want to go on after a tragedy. And certainly in my birth family, my birth parents went on to create families with their spouses and and there was a certain amount of replacing me that they did they wanted to go on and act like i hadn't existed and i think they needed to do that so maybe it's faulty to think about one birth and one loss and compare it to another birth and another family you know what i'm saying i think I think comparing me to the first girl that was my adoptive family's firstborn, I think it's problematic. What work did you have to do to come to some peace with everything that happened in your childhood? That's a great question. Well... 
let me say it's ongoing. At age 54, I am definitely coming through this pandemic with new information about how to help myself through this. Because number one, I did not know how much childhood trauma I was carrying and how much that was influencing my identity, my life choices, my work in the world, my ability to be a spouse and a creator in any number of ways as a parent or otherwise. Um, I ended up last year, just a year ago, hospitalized for trauma and dissociation. And I had no idea that that was ahead of me when I was growing up. I never realized how much more help I needed than the help I had. So first of all, I had a tremendous amount of loving support in my childhood. And there was a lot about how I was raised that was stable and consistent and caring. And much of what was destabilizing for me from within was something I didn't know how to articulate. I didn't know who to tell. I didn't know how to tell. And I didn't know what to tell. So as soon as I started to show signs of self-destruction, which is fairly early in my adolescence, I had a school counselor who suggested to my parents that I get some counseling. And I did start counseling very young. I also went to a support group with other adopted kids, other adoptive parents and birth family. And my adoptive mom took me to that and participated in that with me when I was in high school. She normalized for me that finding out where I came from and who I was related to made me part of our family and not in that there wasn't something to be ashamed of or afraid of about connecting with my origin story. And that's huge. That's been a, that's been an enormous grounding um, source of encouragement that I got from within my family. And I always knew from the time I was told I was adopted that I would someday reunite. And I became very involved in adoptee community spaces and have stayed involved in that all my life. And then um, I, I got involved in peer-to-peer -peer support when I was 17. And part of what that meant was um, I got very involved when I started coming out as a, a queer person in high school. And um, I helped start a youth group. And then um, I got very involved in 12-step recovery. So I had the help of a lot of different kinds of support in and out of school, in and out of my family, um, with professional resources and, and social. This word trauma is used a great deal now. And I thought way into my later life that if you didn't have a scar on your body, that you could show someone like from a bullet or a knife that you did not have trauma. We know a great deal more about how to heal a wound that we can see as opposed to these wounds that are described as psychic 
but they're very much physiological. They're in the brain. And we know less about how to address those wounds. So what have you personally, Mara, found helpful in the in the growth and healing process? That sounds like a simple question. And I could give you one word and it would be spiritual. Let me say what I mean by that is that there is a, a physical dimension, an emotional dimension, a mental dimension. I happen to be someone who was drawn in to wanting to understand all of the things that were happening in my childhood. For example, I studied psychological trauma. I studied how do people heal? And that's one part of what my education gave me. And I must say, my adoptive parents invested in the best academic resources they had to offer. And I I know that I've been supported to understand these things. And I have studied and I continue to study and benefit from what the professional world of healing from trauma offers. The spiritual, though, is the place where I have found the most relief. And I started seeking spiritually very young. So what I want to say about that is being adopted into a Jewish family where even though we were not religiously ex extremely devoted to Judaism, I would say there was a soul of Jewish culture that was present. And I was introduced to and influenced by the story of the Jewish people. And in many ways, I have come to see Judaism as an attempt to live with intergenerational trauma. Many of the Jewish scientists who are looking into epigenetics are motivated by a, a heart for what did our people go through and how can we bring forward something about our healing that can also be helpful to others who are experiencing this kind of pattern. It's in our bodies. And I consider myself to be very lucky that I was able to see that this is a human phenomenon. It is it is a universal search for wholeness. In my personal opinion, we are part of the human story. And yet there's a very specific way that Jewish people interact with the human story. And I believe that I started to benefit from understanding that story when I was really little, like before I became a teenager, before puberty, before I started having really big questions about where did I come from that had to do with a more complicated way of understanding humanity. I think I was introduced to, at the time I was 10, I was introduced to this idea that's often described as tikkun olam, which is a Hebrew expression for healing the world, heal and repair the world. And my mother gave me a desire to participate in making the world a better place. And for me personally, that has always included the inner part of the story. Maybe because I had more depression and despair than another person would have. And is that because as I'm an adoptee, I can't really know the answer to that because I'll never know who I 
might have been if I'd been raised in my birth family, because my birth family also had intergenerational trauma and they were not Jewish. <laughs> um, I come from a Catholic family tree. I don't know how much of who I am as a seeker would have been the same if I'd been raised there. What I do know is that I had a yearning for relief from the pain within me. And I think when I was little, I sought relief from alcohol and other substances. And then as I started to come into recovery, I was finding something better, something better than what it was that I found in addictions. I was able to find something that soothed this place in me in a way that has proved to be the most lasting. But since you mentioned adolescence, I must say, I have recently lost a teenager in my family to the fentanyl epidemic. epidemic. Yes. And having lost a loved one, he's my nephew who was 16 when he died of an overdose. And I'm just realizing how much sorrow I feel about having not been able to save him from his despair. And I feel now, two years since his passing, motivated to find out what more we can do and what more I can do to respond to the call of younger people today. Because the answers I found when I was that age are not necessarily readily available to the next generation. And I feel largely responsible as a result of, like I said about Tikkun Olam, I feel largely responsible for paying it forward for all who have gone before me that have helped me to be as well as I am today to offer what can what can I do to be part of bringing the solution to the next generation. And I think that people tried to help my nephew and I don't want to say we failed, but I think the recovery community can do more. And I say for myself when I say this, to reach out to those who are young and experimenting right now, because so many who are young and experimenting are losing their life because the drugs have changed. The drugs are readily available in a way they weren't when I was growing up or when my birth father was growing up. And I guess what I'm saying is, I'm rededicating myself to paying it forward what was so freely given to me. And yes, I do believe I'm responsible for dedicating myself to my own healing so that I can be of service to those around me. For example, there were two people in my extended family who lost their lives during the pandemic due to suicide. They were addicts. Is it my fault? Absolutely not. I didn't actually know them. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm living out loud enough so that if there are others in my family 
who are struggling with addiction and are feeling isolated and are maybe facing mental illness, I want them to at least know about me and know that I'm going to do everything in my power to help them make it through the hard times. And I want to, I guess it's it's a difficult thing to say because I'm still feeling so new with this, but I feel like I want to promote more efforts to help people who are falling between the cracks. I have a family member right now who's drinking himself to death. Um, and so this is a, a question which is very much, I want your experience, strength and hope. How do you remain on the front lines when the numbers are overwhelming without being further damaged or wounded yourself? How do you protect yourself and your sobriety when you're watching um, a devastating wave? Um, I, I really think the distinction between overdose deaths and suicides is completely arbitrary, the same way I think that mental health is just health. You know, it's holistic. Are you telling me mental health is not a bodily thing? But I'm, I'm asking you as a practical matter, how do you remain on the front lines and reach out to people knowing that you are going to see casualties? firsthand on one level my answer is creativity and art if we'd met three years ago i would have no idea how to answer you and i might have been what's the word inaccurate in describing myself as well prepared for what was ahead. The number of people who died from overdoses and suicide. And I love what you said about the distinction between mental health and health. The amount of suffering that I've witnessed in these last three years has been a real eye opener and I wasn't prepared. And what I have realized is that I have needed to expand my definition of spirituality to include much more than what I did before. And what I mean by that is I feel I must feed my soul and connect with others who are sharing what exactly it is that makes our lives worth living so that we strengthen this collective of people who are thriving in the midst of the pain and welcoming people into the center of the herd. That's one of the things that I have learned is when we discover the people who are at the edges of our community, bring them in, into the center. So I am essentially insisting upon making recovery more fun, living my recovery more out loud, loving and enjoying 
people that I am growing closer to and making recovery stronger, making the purpose of life more specifically to save lives. And that looks like being involved with a variety of organizations in addition to 12-step organizations, in addition to going to counseling, in addition to educating every person I meet about what it looks like to be a person living with stigmatized conditions. So some of what I've been learning to do is mind my own business in a whole new way at the same time while I'm grieving and living better in memory of my nephew than I was living prior to his passing. And for me, what I've come up with is I've decided to be more alive in my transgender identity. I used to hide the parts of me that felt like I'd always been a boy. I saw myself as a boyish lesbian. In fact, I've joked about that over the years with people who also identified as boyish lesbians to one degree or another, like calling myself a lesboy. And I hadn't ever really investigated what it might mean to live my gender difference aloud. And so I got involved in non-binary community in recovery spaces. And I became one of the faces of my generation, encouraging people older and younger who are moving into this gender complexity in community. And I have found a worldwide community where I can be a safe person practicing living out loud with my gender complexity. And this is directly in memory of my nephew, who was such a gender complex person and had so much um, life in him unlived. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. How do you find that your creativity personally manifests itself? Well... I'll tell you, before I met you, I had this idea that I wanted to start a podcast and I started collecting interviews with people. And then when I discovered you, I thought, wow, this really is a good idea. <laughs> I guess I so enjoy the whole experience of listening to people articulate themselves and sharing from the heart like this. So this is part of how I express myself creatively is I invite people to have conversations with me and tell me what it's really like. And then I do a certain amount of 
exploration. Um, I, when I was hospitalized last year, I had no idea how much I needed grounding techniques in the way of coloring and collaging and it was almost like rediscovering childhood and practicing being present over and over and over again and finding out what actually helps me feel alive and connected. And I mention that because I have found my way into all sorts of things that I wouldn't have thought would work for me because I had to try it first. Absolutely. We must do better at how humanity treats humanity. And I guess I'm looking for ways to participate that are joyful. I think that's a better word than fun. Joyful. And what I wrestle with is there, there are silos and sometimes there's a need for silos. So if you take suicide prevention, so the veterans are over there and they're active. And a lot of times if I say, well, I'm not a veteran, but isn't suicide prevention at a certain level suicide prevention? Um, when do we come together and when do we need to be in those silos? When do I need to unapologetically sit in a room with five other old white guys because we're going to have certain things we need to talk about amongst ourselves? And when do we need to get together with the full rich rainbow of everybody? And, and that's something I really wrestle with because there, I, I got to tell you, Mar, there are a lot of little sort of sliver mental health groups and i'm like you guys should come together at certain point into a bunch of you know realize where does our little group fit in all of this and when do we need to be alone in a living room you know siloed and when do we need to all be together for a big party right i think about this a lot so suicide prevention or addressing suicide loss. Um, I'm somebody who felt suicidal throughout my childhood and I didn't know how to talk about it and finally got the help I need last year. The, the whole problem of suicide is much wider than I think we could cover in this conversation. <laughs> you know, if that was our only topic. And I think anything that we do is better than nothing. I think talking about it is super important. And I've just made it uh, high priority, uh, perhaps even the highest priority for me to get better educated about how, how to be a resource, how to be somebody who someone who's suffering can talk to. And how do I live from a place of wanting life to be worth living for me and those I'm close to and those I'm not close to. One of the things that I do is I'm connected to an organization that does this kind of very visible art to communicate about suicide. Um, there, there's a, a t-shirt that I was wearing that says, you are not a burden. Hope is real. Help is real. 
when I was wearing that to a recent Judd's concert um, in memory of Naomi Judd, who, who died of suicide last year, I, I was consciously sharing that idea with others in the stadium because I wanted to be someone who could talk about suicide with anyone around me who might be inspired by that. And it does inspire conversations. So there, I'm not saying everybody should wear t-shirts about suicide prevention. I'm saying if there's something I can do today to make myself more available for that conversation, it's my responsibility to do so. It's, it's like this idea that came from AA and about I am responsible. I think it's a matter of saying, I know I am responsible and I need to be prepared to the best of my ability to open myself to conversations wherever I can, whether that's sometimes I think it's stopping and asking, let's say, someone who seems particularly frightened or particularly withdrawn in a situation. It could be even in public with somebody I don't know and, and not to put myself in, in danger or someone else to, to invade someone else's boundaries, but like to be available for maybe this is a moment where a transformational exchange could occur because we haven't talked about the fact that I survived a hate crime shooting. My life changed without notice 16 where, years ago. Where was that? I was working for the Jewish Federation in greater Seattle. And I was there learning about how a community foundation can help support nonprofit organizations in my desire to learn the field of philanthropy and to be a social change agent among people who are committed to making the world a better place. And I never in a million years thought that in my little office job, being a, a fundraiser, part of a team, that I would be on the front lines of an attack like that, that was purely anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. And, you know, the person who sought out the organization I was working for was this person wasn't asking us, you know, who among us was pro-Palestinian or pro-two-state solution or pro-Mideast peace, which I think you may know because you've met and interviewed my mom that I was raised with the idea that justice between people who share the Holy Land is of utmost importance. And this person who came and shot my coworkers had no idea what complexity there is among people in the Jewish community who are working together for a truly safe world. Like we're not interested in harming people. We're just looking for a way to have Jews be able to live and live safely and live at peace with our neighbors. And um, when he came and shot my coworkers, it changed my life permanently. I, I lear have learned how much gun violence has always been a part of this community, um, not just 
not just my community, that gun violence affects so many communities. And the years since then, of course, I see how much it's it's part of the problem in this country. There's such a deep problem that's that it's bigger than anti-Semitism, obviously. But um, what what the but living through this experience has shown me that there's so much work to do, person to person, talking about the role of guns in our lives and oppression and peacemaking. So I don't want to oversimplify the problem. At the same time, I want to say there is something simple at the heart of the problem. In other words, for me as a person living with mental illness and intergenerational trauma, the likelihood that if I have a gun, I am going to use it against myself is higher than another person who might think that having a gun is a simple matter of protecting themselves. Guns are part of a larger problem in this country. Violence. Larger than, yes. Yes, it's just that the violence can be so permanent in the case of suicide and the case of rage against other hated groups on the on the in the expression of hatred and so i guess well, what i want to say is i can't turn my back and say the problem is too complicated when it comes to suicide i can ask myself what can i do about it i don't claim to have the answer i just know that i can show up and i can talk to you about it and together we can make every effort Um, when you're talking, I'm seeing this image of the ripples, the ripple effect yes, of, exactly. of trauma, but there's a, also a rippling effect. Um, there's a chapter of the textbook we know, which says, each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to all and this widening circle these ripples of your love revolution i love that mar you can sign me up well uh, i was gonna say i know this is corny but you know it begins with befriending each other like i want you to know me and i want to care for you and I think that us mattering to each other is how we do it. I love you. Well, you know I love you. <laughs> I think you'll reach people, Mar. I have to say one of the parts of this that I dislike is that I feel I have to relinquish the idea of myself that I thought was me. And I'm using the word relinquish intentionally because it goes all the way back to my origin story when I was born. And I think that there is a, a sacrifice for me at this stage of life where who I thought I was, what I thought I was doing is not, it's not working out the way that I wanted it to. I saw myself becoming a mental health professional. I saw myself as a therapist and someone who is committed to bringing 
better help into the world through counseling. And what I've come to is that I, I feel so called to share about my personal journey. I think I can do better in some other capacity. And it's a loss for me. I'm hoping that I can resolve that through putting my education to good use in some other way. It may not be an either or. It's all to the good. I hope you're right. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little digital recording, what is your legacy? Mm. Embrace the grief. Don't hide the grief. Don't minimize the grief. Don't somehow put a barrier between the grief and the work in the world or the grief and the family. I think the path to loving better and living out loud is finding a way to love the grief. God, that's hard. It is very painful. I want to run away. I want to numb yeah. it out. Yeah. I seem to like to um, freeze. I seem to like to freeze best. I seem to be the, the dissociator in the, in the, in the bunch. I'm really interested in discovering how that can transform our lives for the better and friendships. Honestly, the more I get to know people who are, becoming the loving parent in their lives, the more fun I'm having in recovery. You are such a curious individual and a seeker that you're always asking these questions and challenging yourself. You give me a heart emoji. I, uh, right back at you. <laughs> I can't operate my emojis. <laughs> but I'm just so grateful to you and for our friendship and so blessed to know you. So I wanted to say thank you for taking this time. Thank you, Stuart. Mar, thank you and bless you for everything you do and the work you do. I just, I just am a big fan. I really am. Check out voicelocket.com. Tell me what you think. Stay in touch. And I appreciate you so much for listening. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. Thank you for all you've done for 
manlistening.com for In Her Words, the podcast, and now for voicelocket.com, the business. I appreciate you. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.